Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgesa. This is the third and final podcast series on climate change. Today's guest is Moose Anna Jones, a freelance agricultural journalist, a broadcaster, a farmer's daughter, and a Nuffield farming scholar. Anna was born in 1981 into a long line of farmers on the beautiful Welsh Shropshire border, and her childhood memories are coloured with, and I quote, bottle feeding, pushing sheep down the race, riding the stock Rory with dad, and getting told off for riding the bells, end of quotations. While farming undoubtedly courses through Anna's veins, her childhood ambition, as far as she can remember, was to become a journalist when she grew up without even knowing what exactly journalism actually entailed. Thus it was that upon turning 18 years old, Anna left home for the first time to enrol at the University of Central Lancashire where she read journalism. Anna was the first in her direct family line, stretching right back to her pauper agricultural labourer ancestor, who was born in 1777 to go to university and move to a city. After graduating in 2002 with a BA honours in journalism, and worked for several regional media houses, including the Wolverhampton-based Express and Star, the biggest selling regional evening newspaper in Britain. Her big break came in 2006, when she joined BBC One's Country File as a researcher, where she remained for 12 years. During her tenure at the BBC, Anna worked in various capacities on Country File, Radio Falls Farming Today, On Your Farm, Costing the Earth, and The Archers, reporting mainly on agricultural issues. Anna's career at the BBC took an unexpected turn after winning the Nuffield Farming Scholarship in 2016 and began investigating into how the media portrays farming and country life to the public. Thanks to the scholarship, Anna travelled around the world and discovered a deep disconnect between, and I quote, metropolitan mainstream media and a distrustful and defensive farming industry, end of quotations, which, she prof- which profoundly affected her. Armed with her scholarship findings, Anna resolved, and I quote, to motivate farmers to step up and share their stories and reputations. Thus it was that in 2018, she left the BBC to set up Just Farmers. Just Farmers is a not-for-profit organisation that gives farmers and growers the confidence to tell their stories with pride through free media education workshops while helping members of the media find independent farmer case studies to talk to. Anna is the author of Divide, the relationship crisis between town and country. In this episode, we discuss the topic, climate change, a crisis between town and country, Ms. Anna Jones, welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. In the prologue of your book, Divide, you write, and I quote, The road back to rural life is fraught with obstacles. What would I do for work? Could I commute? Where would I leave? And most profoundly of all, would I fit in? I'm not the person I once was. I am urbanized, used to convenience, used to choosing from endless options, used to living and thinking a certain way. 
I have a life that is different in almost every way to my conservative, rural, working-class upbringing. I am no longer part of the community I grew up in. Could I ever truly belong again? Could a townie ever go back to being a country dweller? End of quotations. Anna, please share with us your favourite childhood memory and how did your childhood experience colour your appreciation of reality as an adult that gave rise to the tension you so ably sketch in the prologue of your book? Well, um, so Steve, I suppose my favourite childhood memory um, probably goes back to the quote that you just gave um, about it's probably not one single memory. It's more the the life that we lived as kids. So, yeah, um, you mentioned there my favourite times were getting in the stock lorry with Dad and driving down to sort the sheep out at the weekend. So um, a lorry, a big a big truck with livestock on it. We would um, we would go down from our farm, which was in the hills, and obviously the, the the ground, the grass up in the in the hill areas was not as good quality as the lowland areas. So Dad would rent some grazing. He would rent some land to graze the sheep that was on lower land near the River Severn, near Shrewsbury, and it was the grass there was much more lush and fertile. And the sheep would grow fatter on it than they would on our hilly little farm uh, up in the clouds. So at weekends, we would go down and my mum would pack this huge picnic in this gigantic box. And there would be all sorts of food in there. And we would go down and we would get sometimes there would be hundreds of sheep on the field, like 400, 500 sheep. It was massive. And we'd get them into the pens and it would take us all day to sort them out and you know, we would uh, do various jobs, weaning lambs or tailing ewes, which is where you, 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 if they get dirty bums, you have to clean them up. <laughs> and we would do those jobs for entire Sundays and eat a picnic and play on the tree. And uh, which my sister's, there was a big oak tree that had a bouncy branch and we used to sit on it and pretend we were on a horse. Honestly, they were such simple, simple times. Um and it was not, it felt like a holiday, even though it wasn't. It was always dad's work. Life was just work growing up because a farm never stops. And I think um, that was just normal life. That's how we lived. And it wasn't until I left the farm and left my community that I realized that's actually quite unusual. Most people don't go and sort sheep out an entire Sunday uh with their parents and um all the things that I took for granted as being normal I realized were were quite unusual and I didn't realize that actually I belonged to a a minority culture in modern life in in modern Britain um and I think that came as a bit of a surprise to me as an adult particularly when I moved to the city um that I was so unusual uh, in that regard. Um, so I suppose, yes, it was just a feeling of, gosh, not everybody grows up like this. And then starting to learn about another culture that I had not been exposed to and getting my head around urban life and more of a metropolitan way of living. In the first chapter of Divide at page 10, you write, and I quote, Amanda Owens, the star of the hit Channel 5 series, Our Yorkshire Farm, in answering a question put to her by you, said thus, and I quote, I think it's a Yorkshire town, she says. The Cambrians would say, hift. It's the sense of belonging to land. The sheep know their heath. They know where they are raised and they know the boundary keeping them there. That's an ancient practice that has gone on forever. In a way, maybe a person can be heaved. End of quotations. Anna, 
in a language an ordinary man in the street would understand. What exactly do you mean by Heath? So it was the first time I had heard it when I when I wrote the book. Um, so heft, um, a hefted flock is a Cumbrian phrase, which I had heard of. I knew what that meant. Um, and heath, or as Amanda pronounced it, hoof, um, is the Yorkshire term, is the Yorkshire version of the Cumbrian phrase. And... Um, Welsh people have their own word for it as well. So do Scottish people. And and what it means is in the very mountainous areas of British farming country. So when you when you start looking at the fells of Cumbria or the mountains of Wales or the Munros of Scotland, and when you look at the sheep farms that are in those areas, if your flock is hefted or heafed or hoofed or however you want to pronounce it, it means that your sheep over generations and generations of breeding have learnt the part of the mountain that is their home. So they don't need a fence. They don't need a pen. That The sheep know where they should be. And the mother you, the mother sheep, will pass that knowledge onto her lamb. And so it has been for hundreds of years. So these shepherding communities in these incredibly traditional and historic farming communities in the most upland areas of, of the of the British Isles um, have developed this. And I, I don't know how you teach a sheep to know where its home is and how they, you know, not to stray into the neighbouring's farms area. I don't know how you do that. But um, that is what to heft means or a hefted sheep, a hefted flock. And then I suppose it introduced this idea that people too can be hefted. They can have their heath or their hoof. And um, once I'd started exploring that as a thought, I thought this is absolutely true. There are, there are people that belong to their piece of mountain every much as that, uh, just as much as there are sheep that belong to their piece of mountain. So it became a bit of a theme in the book to um, explore this, this culture of being hefted or of belonging to land. On page 30 of your book, you write, and I quote, This is a familiar picture in rural areas right across the UK. Young people leave, they get jobs in the city, they settle elsewhere and rarely return. My disconnection at the age of 18 from the land to which my forefathers and mothers belonged in search of a busier, brighter destiny in the city mirrors the story of the wider UK population over hundreds of years. The story of our great disconnection, end of quotation, Anna, would you please talk to our audience about the Great Disconnection and what has it got to do with the crisis between town and country? In my mind, the, the Great Disconnection is a form of collective amnesia, um, particularly in heavily urbanised post-industrial countries like the UK. So if you were to go back to the 19th century, we saw two complementary revolutions take place, industrial and agricultural. So from an industrial revolution perspective, obviously we saw the, the factories and the mills springing up into the, in the new towns, particularly you know, Manchester, Bradford, all of these places, and people moving, a mass, a mass exodus from the countryside to leave a life of poverty and subsistence farming on the land and to move to the new towns and cities and the promise of a, of a better life. Um, whether they found it or not, that sowed the seeds for disconnection from the land because inevitably you would have been the son or daughter of a farmer and moved to 
work in a factory in, in a town or city, but then your children would become city dwellers and so on, so on, so on. So that cultural tie to the to the hinterland, to, to farming and to a rural way of life is is severed. And for millions of people in this country, never has never been reattached, has has remained a disconnection. Um, and then the agricultural revolution, as we saw this mass migration from the countryside, obviously the people still needed to eat. So rather than having um, peasant farming, if you like, where everybody is, is, is cultivating their own small strip or patch of earth, you, you suddenly get uh, a, a boom in agricultural production, which allows the few to feed the many. So the, the job of feeding the nation is handed to the farmer. Rather than us feeding ourselves, we rely on the farmer to do the job for us. And the farmers become the minority. The, the people that eat their food become the majority. But if they live far away in towns, cities and can't see that food being produced every day, there's another disconnection from the knowledge of food, the knowledge of where food comes from, how it is grown, how it's produced. And that in, in the early stages worked brilliantly. You know, what a great system. But I don't think anyone could have foreseen the crisis of identity and, and culture clash that would emerge, and which is where we are now. So sort of fast forward 200 years um, or 150 years, and you have a group of people producing the food to feed the majority who the majority buy the food, but often don't think about where it may have come from and that uh, and want it as cheap as possible. And the people that sell the food have forced the farmers into such a position of uh, producing the food for as cheap as possible, as little um, people want to pay as little as possible, and this is becoming even more pertinent with the cost of living crisis, um, the, the, the conflict, the, the crisis that I write about in my book is starting to open up on two levels. So one, farmers, um, this isn't necessarily rural people, this is specifically farmers, um, have felt for a very long time out of sight and out of mind, um, sort of misunderstood, underappreciated, um, and kind of taken for granted. You know, we, we take our full bellies for granted in, in this country. Um, and then on the other side, you find people that have been disconnected from the land for a very long time, that have been disconnected from their food and nature and understanding where their food comes from. When they start to re-educate themselves about where their food comes from, which inevitably comes from watching videos on YouTube or reading books or watching documentaries or on social media um, or through activism, um, they're finding that farming has changed from the old MacDonald rose-tinted storybooks we read as children and has now become a huge industrial system that they don't like so what has happened by disconnecting ourselves from the land and from farming we have forgotten so much of of that identity but also we've been asleep while farming um as a, as an industry has evolved progressed intensified and become a much bigger machine than I think a lot of people could ever even imagine. So when they find out where their pork sausages or their chicken nuggets come from, it's like a great awakening and a big shock. So this is why we're having a lot of conflicts around food, around animal welfare, environmental protection, so many of these things, because ultimately at their heart, you've got a majority group i.e. those of us that, could, that live, that don't work in farming, and a minority group, those that do, who fundamentally misunderstand each other because of that cultural and geographical disconnection I described earlier. So that kind of lays the foundation for, for a lot of conflict, which I explore in the book. 
Speaking of a crisis between town and country, you write at page 68 of your book the following, and I quote, It gradually dawned on me just how politically naive I was. With no party political identity of my own, I struggled to articulate my feelings. I felt the need to defend something deep within me, something which felt under attack, but I couldn't put my finger on what? End of quotations. Anna, to the listener who has not read your book, please explain to us the feeling you were struggling to articulate and why did you feel you were under attack? So the context to this is um, perhaps unsurprisingly, growing up in a, in a farming family in a rural community, my family and everybody I knew around me was conservative growing up. Um, conservative in the sense they voted conservative and conservative in a, in a social sense as well. Um, I wouldn't say deep, not, I wouldn't say deeply conservative, but we lived that very genteel rural life of Sunday school and going to church and always wearing a poppy and singing the national anthem and being proud of the institutions of the country, be, it, be that the monarchy or the armed forces or the Church of England, um, and living a rural life that was conservative with a small c. I suppose I wasn't... Uh, well, in fact, I had no exposure to a left-wing way of thinking or even um, an alternative way of living. Um, I, I, I didn't really meet people who were different in any way. Um, so that was the environment that I, that I grew up in. And I suppose as a child, you, you don't question your home. It's just home and the people around you are your family, your neighbours, your friends. Um, you know, it didn't, I don't think I ever consciously acknowledged that everyone was white or everyone was heterosexual or everyone was uh, Church of England Christian. Um, that was just my world. Um, and I suppose when I moved to the city for the first time, bearing in mind I was 25, I was quite old to move to a city for the first time. Um, I moved to Birmingham and it was just the most incredible experience. And in terms of my cultural and social experiences, I couldn't get enough. It was the first time I'd tried international food from different countries. I didn't know how to use chopsticks. I'd never tasted sushi. I'd, I'd never really, there were so many food experiences I never had. Um, I had never met many people from other cultures, um, other religions, other countries, and I found that hugely exciting. Um, so it was, it was a hugely positive experience. The only area where I felt uncomfortable was politics. Now, I was not, I'm still not, and I think being a journalist kind of bashes out political thinking pretty quickly because being balanced and uh, it become, comes first. And, um, you know, at the BBC, any kind of political activism or anything is, is certainly frowned upon. So I, I wouldn't call myself a political animal in any sense. But there was obviously something in me that felt a little bit, discomforted in, in, in the city. And bearing in mind, I was living in inner city Birmingham. I was living in a shared house with lots of young, politically minded, left-wing liberal uh, students and young professionals. And I was exposed to a new way of thinking. And, and I think the reason I felt under attack, maybe that's a little bit too strong a word, because I didn't feel under attack, but I did feel like I needed to defend myself all the time or maybe defend my community. What I observed moving into the city was there was an automatic assumption that 
conservatism or the Tories would be universally viewed with suspicion and distrust, distaste and dislike. And it was just assumed that you would agree with that. Now, when it comes to the Conservative Party, I, I didn't really, I didn't really care massively. I, I wasn't, to be honest, at that age, I was quite politically apathetic. So I wasn't, I didn't really have a political party identity at all. But I knew that my family did, and my my grandparents were Conservative Party members, um, and went to the Conservative Club on a Sunday for their lunch, and the image of the Tory voter, inverted commas that I was being presented with in the city from my left-wing friends really didn't fit with my knowledge of my family, the, the community that I was from. Um, and I felt, I suppose, that I needed to defend that community. So, but because I wasn't, I was very politically naive I didn't really know how to put that argument across because remember, this is all with hindsight. I'm 41 now. So now I understand how I've developed and now I understand where I've come from and the person I've become. At the age of 25, I had no idea. It was, I, I didn't know, I didn't know how to articulate this feeling. So I ended up saying stupid stuff. So I, I would end up sounding right wing or I would end up sounding intolerant. Or, and I was misunderstood and there were some big arguments and I couldn't articulate myself. And the frustration of that experience left me feeling very isolated and very alone. And I suppose that was difficult for me, was moving from a completely conservative culture into a completely liberal and left-leaning culture um, it was going from one extreme to another, which you get that feeling like a fish out of water. So, yeah, and looking back, I'm very, very grateful for it. And, I, and actually, when I was writing the book, I spoke to one of my best friends, Max. Max is a firebrand of a socialist. He's incredibly left-wing. And um, re he, he's a very, very interesting guy to talk to. He's also a journalist. And back then, he kind of ate me for breakfast, really, because he he was so politically mature in terms of, you know, he'd read the books and he understood what he believed. I didn't. And um, it was kind of a David and Goliath situation between us, really. And it was only when I was writing the book that I actually talked to Max about what those days were like for me. And... Um, as I said, being able to articulate yourself with the benefit of some age and some hindsight is a wonderful thing because Max listened to me and I wasn't expecting this and I certainly wasn't fishing for it. He apologised. And he said I had never even considered that somebody that comes from a rural background might have been brought up in differently. He's like, you know, I just assumed we were all kind of the same and, and know the same things and, and should feel the same things. Um, and that was an incredibly illuminating conversation. Um, but I suppose it taught me one thing. It, it taught me how important it is to feel like a fish out of water sometimes. It's a really healthy thing for your development as a person to step away from your echo chamber, to step away from your tribe, to put yourself in the environment that is different. Because those are the experiences, though difficult in the moment, that shape you and help you emerge as a more rounded person on the other side. So I'm very, I, I don't regret a minute of it, not a single minute, because I, I'm grateful that I had those different influences in my life. So, sorry, slightly long-winded answer, but I hope that kind of made some sense. In Chapter 6 of Divide, you deal with food, and at page 177 you write thus, and I quote, It has to be said that emotionally blinkered dedication 
to the way of life gets them, that is farmers, into trouble sometimes. You cannot overstate a farmer's cultural compulsion to feed and sustain a nation. It is deeply ingrained, a sense of duty and pride handed down the generations. It is their reason for being. To say you don't want to eat their food, or worse, you don't want anyone else to eat their food, is like someone saying, and I quote, your house is shit, or your parents are dicks. And when it comes to the meat debate, there is a massive blind spot among livestock producers, end of quotations. I must say, that is some strong stuff. Now, in the first episode of our climate change podcast series, one of the things uh, Jonathan Porritt suggested ordinary people could do in our collective fight against climate change was to eat less meat. Anna, how can we square the circle when it comes to the cultural compulsion to feed and sustain the nation and the growing reality of climate change? And would you please talk to us about what you mean by and I quote, massive blind spot among livestock producers you speak of. Absolutely. And first of all, I'm, I'm so sorry for making you swear on the Stephen Kamagasa <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I want to lower the tone of this wonderful series. Um, so, yeah, the, the, um, the, so the meat debate... The great, the great shame about this vital public discussion around meat is that it completely got off on the wrong foot in terms of its public, the public discussion of it. Because when this started to gain traction, going back to maybe 2015, 2016, around the same time that I started my Nuffield Farming Scholarship, we were not having a reasoned debate about eating less meat. We were having a binary debate about whether you should go vegan or not. And the media, unfortunately, my own profession, has a huge responsibility in doing that. And it has caused way more damage than I think anyone could have guessed or predicted. So... This is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and I do agree that we need to eat less meat. And I will talk about that more in a moment. Um, but when we started having the, the meat conversation in earnest, it was done in such a childish way. Um, it was kind of go vegan or get out kind of. And, and you, you remember the stories and it was kind of and then there was a lot of trolling on farmers on social media and small family farms that were trying to sell a lamb box to make a bit of extra money for their family were being called murderers and people trying to sell a bit of milk from the farm gate in their vending machine were being called rapists and there was just horrific bullying of family farming and they were they were totally unprepared for the debate. How can somebody go up against somebody who makes the argument, how can you justify killing an animal that wants to live? Now, for a family farm who have made their living from doing that, but then being faced with the, the philosophical argument, the moral argument on the public stage in front of millions watching you on Good Morning Britain or This Morning or BBC Breakfast or whatever it is, up against a very blinkered vegan activist who has a very black and white view of the issue. Who is going to win that argument? Because these poor farmers had nowhere to go because they were up against a yes or no debate which is very easy for the public to grasp and very easy to understand and they were trying to communicate something much more complex and it has taken until now 2023 at least that the complexity and the nuance of that discussion 
is only just starting to cut through. And the public are only just starting to realise, oh, yeah, we need grazing animals in order to have grassland habitats. Oh, okay, And we need ruminants in order to eat grass, which we can't eat, to turn it into highly nutritious protein-packed food like meat and dairy. Oh, okay. And we need animals to put their manure on the ground so that we can fertilize our crops and grow fruit and vegetables. Right. And these are the very basic reasons why we need animals, in particular grazing ruminants on our landscape. Otherwise, if you like meadows and if you like grassland habitats and grassland wildlife, without grazing ruminants, we don't have that. We have forest. So... These are the complex arguments that have taken years to cut through that really awful, traumatic, horrible, basic binary debate between meat and no meat. So when it comes to the blind spot, the blind spot has been created through a campaign of attack. And the blind spot that many livestock producers feel um, is a sort of battening down the hatches, fingers in their ears, keep their eyes closed, let's just weather this awful storm, rather than actually sitting down and engaging with the real debate, which is we eat too much meat, particularly in the West, and we really need to have a a conversation about that. So we have got off on the wrong foot. We have upset the people that produce the food that we eat in such a fundamental way that bringing their trust back to the table is going to take some work. Um, I think that is happening because I I can speak to quite a lot of farmers now and they don't quite get that red mist emotional response that they were a few years ago when people in balaclavas were creeping around farms and doing sit-down protests in chicken sheds and things like that. Um, So I think it probably is getting a little bit better. Um, but this blind spot is a problem because farmers have been thrown or some livestock farmers have been thrown so far on the defensive that they are now unable to see the facts or they do not want to see the facts. And the truth is we do not need to consume animal protein in the current levels that we are. We, we don't. And, and even in my lifetime, when I was growing up, yes, I was raised on a diet of meat and two veg, a very traditional diet, and I grew very healthy and very strong on it. Um, but the things that we have available that are meat-free and plant-based now were not widely available when I was a child. Simple things like pesto or different grains, different nuts, quinoa, the I'd never even heard of these things. So the truth is that we are now able to have a much more affordable and diverse diet that we do not need to rely on meat in the way that we once did. Meat has served us beautifully and it still does. I need meat in my diet, but you don't need it every day or three times a day or whatever. So the... The situation we we need to get to when you ask about squaring the circle when it comes to this cultural compulsion to feed and sustain the nation is kind of reminding farmers that they feed us whatever it is that we eat, whether it's beef or broccoli. And by moving away a little bit from meat does not mean that we are moving away from farmers or their service that they provide. And... I think that that penny hasn't quite dropped for some because farmers as a group tend to be quite resistant to change and quite they find it quite difficult. They, they're very good at changing and adapting because we can see through when you look at the huge changes agriculture has been on since we first developed the ability to cultivate land 10,000 years ago and where you look at where agriculture and farming is now evidently farmers can change and they can adapt very quickly to a changing world and they will adapt to a changing world in the context of climate change but it culturally and in their mindset they're a little bit slower to change and adapt Um, and that's something that needs to be handled quite carefully 
because they 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 can have a bit of a they're not great at listening to people who they perceive to be outsiders or don't understand farming and being told what to do by bureaucrats or by environmentalists or by people who have an opinion about farming but don't really know how to farm that does not garner respect from many food producers so we have to be aware of that kind of awkwardness um but also it we have to get some of them to accept the facts and you know i I have not heard an argument that convinces me that a fully vegan diet is good for me and my health, is good for the planet, or makes sense environmentally or whatever. I really don't think it stacks up as a dietary choice. But equally, I have not heard an argument that convinces me that consuming meat at the current levels is a good thing for our health, for our planet, for nature, um so where does that leave me that leaves me in the middle ground and the middle ground is a very exciting place to be and squaring the circle is about bringing all sides into the circle that are willing to step away from their entrenched place in one of those two areas and accepting that we ain't going to square this circle unless we sort of meet in the middle and accept that there needs to be a fundamental shift in how we think about meat and how we consume meat. So, yes, I'll stop talking about that because that's going to go on a bit too long, I think. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> In chapter seven of Divide, where you touch upon the environment, you write at page 201 thus, and I quote, when you are out there every day, you see the soil and you can see the fields with good soil. And I thought Sprats was a good field. But there was one year, in about 2010, when we ploughed it and it looked dreadful. The soil didn't move like it used to. It didn't have any life left in it, end of quotations. Anna, would you please talk to us about the environmental impact of intensive farming? And what can we do to change this reality? Absolutely. Um, well, that, that's the story. What you've quoted there, Stephen, is the story of Sprats in Essex, which is uh, in, in the environment chapter of the book, I explore the life story of one field to try and take the reader on a journey through the Green Revolution, which is when we saw the massive intensification of agriculture after the Second World War. And how that field performed throughout the second half of the 20th century and the early part of this century. Um, and 2010 is the first time since the Second World War that the farmer had noticed that something was different, that something was changing, that something wasn't right with Sprats. And it had been farmed very intensively up to that point. Um, the environmental impact of intensive farming. So Intensive farming as a term is not a negative term, but many farmers take it negatively because it's been hurled at them in a negative context so much. Um, but actually, when you look at what it is, it's a very, it's a very accurate way of describing what happens. It's um, land being far being specialised. So what happened with Sprats in the 1960s? It was growing a long list of, of, of crops. It was in a very broad rotation, right from peas to wheat to hay for cattle. Um, there was a long list of things that it could grow. And over time, particularly as wheat became more and more heavily subsidized by the European Union, um, it became more of a specialist until it got to the point that it was only growing two crops. So it was growing wheat, oilseed rape, Wheat, oilseed rape, um, or no, sorry, beans, sorry, uh, beans, I think it was. Um, it would have been one of the nitrogen-fixing crops. So it went to this very tight rotation between these two crops, and that kind of intensive, repetitious, 
specialist farming of driving the land to predominantly produce one crop is first and foremost where we've gone wrong because nature is all about diversity and nature likes to have a bit of everything. Um, that's where the balance is. So back in the days when we had much broader rotations between oats and wheat and flax and barley and all these different things, that was much healthier for the soil as well. Um, and obviously it had been sprayed with herbicides and pesticides and it had been fertilised with synthetic fertiliser because the cattle that had once grazed that land had long since left to allow the land to specialise again in crop production. So what we have seen is probably something we could not have known at the time because they would have looked at a field like Sprat, which performed brilliantly under the plough, and they would have thought, why would we ever grow hay for cattle on this again? It, it grows brilliant wheat. Let's just grow wheat, as much wheat as we can. And look at this. This fertiliser is making us get even more wheat. And this herbicide is getting rid of all of the weeds that have troubled us for generations. This is just amazing. So I think, you know, when we talk about intensive farming being this terrible thing, um, I would challenge somebody. It's OK to say that now with hindsight. But going back to the 1960s, there was only a few people, Rachel Carson and the like, and the very, very small organic movement who knew that maybe this might not be a good thing. The vast, vast majority of people thought that this was the lifeline that we had been waiting for that would prevent our population from starving and would prevent our food security going into the nightmarish place it did during the Second World War. So intensive farming hasn't always been a naughty word. At one point, it was a lifesaver. Um, so what can we do to change well, it's about that constant evolution that I talked about earlier. It's very simple. It's about looking at it and going, wow, this worked really well for us for a while, but it isn't working now because, you know, of what we know about sprats, not the soil not moving like it used to, not having life left in it, the impact we know that pesticides, herbicides are having on nature, on our pollinators, the impacts we know synthetic fertilizers are having on water quality um, with runoff and things like that. And the simple fact that we understand soil, we understand soil biology so much more than we did. We still don't understand a lot, but we do understand more. And we can work with that. We can now start to go, actually, nature has more of the answers than we ever thought it did. So if we start working with natural processes rather than against them, such as introducing more diversity back into our rotations, more organic matter into our soils rather than synthetic fertilizers. So bringing back livestock to some of those very thirsty arable fields, we can start to turn the tide. And there are many, many farmers that are and you can put a label on it if you want. Some people call it regenerative agriculture. Um, conservation agriculture, agroecology, and then there's all the different practices within that, mob grazing and no-till and minimum till and all of these things. If we start using them on a massive scale and start moving away from a system that served us once but serves us no more, well, does serve us, but will it really continue in the long term? Um, that is how we change it. But again, like I said earlier, Farming doesn't spin like, you know, it, it, it's not, you can't just flip it over and change it overnight. Farming has always been a long-term business, an industry of slow evolution. So while many of us feel impatient and we want the action now because climate change is so urgent, farming can only go so fast. You know, it takes a year to grow one crop. They say farming works in five year cycles. So if you want to start changing your farming practices, you probably need to start looking five years down the line before you've really embedded something that feels like a change. You know, it is an, it is an oil tanker in turning. It takes time. 
But that's the rub, that's the conflict, because we have a very urgent environmental activist movement that is all about urgent action now, 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 which I totally get. But you've got that rubbing up against an industry that can only act comparatively slowly. Um, and how we find the balance between that urgency and that tendency to evolve rather slowly, um, I think, is where we're getting the conflict right now. The title of our podcast is Climate Change, a crisis between town and country. A recent Farmers Weekly survey showed that British farmers are producing a lot less food because of crippling costs and removal of food subsidies. The government announced checks will begin on EU imports in October 2023, which will force many EU exporters to give up sending food to Britain. Anna, in the context of a podcast theme, as Britain becomes more and more reliant on world markets for food, what do you expect to see happen to food security and food standards? And is this position sustainable for an island of 67 million people to diminish domestic production and lose the benefit of free trade with Europe and to rely on world markets? So I've been writing about this. I've been so the paperback of my book is coming out in September and I've had to update the food chapter completely because I wrote the hardback in finished the hardback in December 2021 and the world is a completely different place to then so you know we've had Russia invading Ukraine, a cost of living crisis, energy prices going through the roof, you know, the world the context has changed. So I'm updating the food chapter to talk about a lot of these issues at the moment. Um, where it, what's going to happen with food security and food standards? That will boil down, Stephen, to whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Because you, if you're an optimist, which I am, and that gets me into trouble sometimes because sometimes I do back the wrong horse and I'm bitterly disappointed, but more often than not, it pay, pays off. But let's just take the optimistic view. The optimistic view would say that the, the UK is very good at growing food. We have a temperate climate. We grow lots of grass. We have lots of rain. And we have, maybe not the best, but a certainly a very technically advanced and a sustainable, if you compare it to many other parts of the world, a sustainable farming sector that can produce a lot of food. I mean, we're still 60% self-sufficient in food. And if you, if you break it down into the products we can grow here, that figure goes up substantially. So that's 60%. You know, what's in the 40% is things like bananas and avocados, which we can't grow anyway. Um, so we are not doing badly. And I think the common sense argument of we live in an abundant country that can grow abundant food. Let's just keep growing food and not be stupid. And, you know, why would we throw out the baby with the bathwater? And if you trust the government, let's have a pregnant pause there. <laughs> if you choose to trust the government, it has repeatedly made commitments to food standards. And we recently saw the food summit last week at number 10, where that commitment to maintaining food security was reiterated, even though it hasn't gone quite so far as what the National Farmers Union and others have been calling for, such as using powers within the Agriculture Act to say that there's been market failure in certain sectors because of the shortages we've seen with eggs and salads and so on. It hasn't gone that far, but you have seen government rhetoric or government commitments demonstrating uh, the support of, of British farming. So that's the optimistic view. Um, 
And I would say the common sense view. I really don't. I'll leave it there. The pessimistic view or the, the cynical view or the slightly less rosy view. Sadly, I hear coming more and more from farmers themselves. And that makes me worry because in crisis, when we've had crises in the past, farmers have always maintained a level of optimism when you talk to them about it. They're like, well, we'll keep doing this. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a good feeling about British agriculture and we will pull through. And, you know, usually they're the ones with the optimistic outlook. Last week, I interviewed a farmer. He's a pig farmer who's decided to pack in because he just can't take it anymore because the, the situation in the pig industry has been diabolical for the last two years. And even though the prices are now at record levels and have recovered, he's like, it's, it's too little too late. I'm out. I cannot take this risk anymore. I'm hundreds of thousands of pounds in debt. I cannot afford to go through another crisis in the pig sector. So I'm out. And this is a second generation farmer who has pig farming in his very identity. Like that is who he is to me. And now he's going to have to figure out a, another way of making income from his farm. And he's thinking about changing buildings use or doing more of the biodiversity net gain stuff or, or other ways of bringing money in renewable energy, things like that. And he said, when it comes to food security, we're on a completely losing wicket. He said, we are in irrelevance. This government doesn't care. And agriculture will only ever be a bargaining chip in trade deals with country, other countries. Um, you know, when it comes down to selling our food or selling our finance, our financial services, he was like, it's a no brainer what the government is going to choose to sell and what's the most valuable, particularly if we're signing a trade deal with a large agricultural exporter, such as New Zealand and Australia. And we saw how those deals went down with the farming industry. So there's the balance. Um, and, you know, your question says, what do you expect to see happen? And I honestly, Stephen, I honestly can't call it. I really, really can't. I think we are on a knife edge. I think it could go either way. I think we could be okay. But I also think this could be cataclysmic for our farming industry and British food. Um, but I'm not going to say what I expect. I'm really, really not. I am going to watch and observe, biting my nails and just hoping and keeping my fingers crossed that common sense will prevail, that we will recognise the value of living in a country that has so much rain and can produce so much food and compare that to the experience of people in the world who are not that lucky and feel a huge sense of gratitude for that and to not throw that away. To throw that away, I think, would be an act of such self-harm and such selfishness, actually, because to, to pursue a dream of, oh, we're going to have... Um, a countryside where we only produce public goods and environmental benefits and we'll bring in our food from elsewhere. That is such a privilege of the rich to think like that, to think, oh, well, we'll just get another country who might be struggling more than us on environmental protection and we'll just get them to produce our food and they can do it cheaper and we'll bring that in while we turn our countryside into this beautiful place for us to enjoy nature. Um, I, I don't see that as an act of environmental protection. I see that as arrogant and morally wrong. Um, we have a duty to sustainably use the resources that we have here to feed our own population with food that was grown on their own land. Um, so that, that's my view, that's my personal view, and I'm starting to stray into a bit of emotion there. Um, but I can just, I, all I can do is just hope that the, there are people in government that share my view. Um, but I think all we can do is, is wait, wait and see and hope. Fair enough. 
You are now focusing most of your energies on running a charitable organization, Just Farmers, which you established in 2018. Anna, please talk to us about your challenges in running Just Farmers. And what is your biggest fear? The challenge of running Just Farmers is funding, especially as we go into a time where nobody has any money. Um, so Just Farmers um, is just it's a very simple idea. What we do is we run media education workshops for ordinary farmers. And when I say ordinary farmers, I mean uh, those working at the grassroots of the industry, just doing the job day in, day out. Not They're not office holders at the farm unions or trade associations. They're, they are just farmers speaking from their own personal, tangible experience of working the land and producing whatever it is that they produce. Um, and they're very diverse groups representing every sector and system. So we'll have two dairy farmers. One might have a large-scale housed intensive herd. The other might be a very small-scale calf-at-foot dairy, which keeps the calves with their mothers um, We'll have arable growers. We'll have one who's conventional, one who's organic. Pig farmers, a free-range outdoor pig farmer, an intensive indoor farmer. You know, one-acre market gardeners right up to uh, thousand-acre vegetable growers. You know, it, we are incredibly diverse in our workshops. Um, so we and we do four days of fully funded media education training with those farmers. I don't call it media training because I don't believe in media training. Media training in the traditional sense is teaching people to avoid difficult questions and how to get their message across no matter what. So they just parrot the same thing in the hope that somebody will listen and print it. This isn't that. This is about understanding how to think like a journalist, how to understand what makes a story and how to work with the media rather than trying to control the media. Um, and then once they've been through the training, they agree to have a profile posted on our website and registered members of the media who can register on our website for free. And if they're looking for an interviewee or a case study, they can search using the search terms of the story they're working on or the part of the country they want to find somebody in. And it will bring up the farmers that we've trained who would be happy to speak to them and the media can access their contact details directly. Rather than having to go through a press office and that whole dragon at the gate thing, they can just speak directly to a farmer and have an open conversation without somebody whispering in their ear telling them what to say. So that's what Just Farmers is. That's, that's what we do. Um, it's run, I have uh, an editor working for me who does two days a week. I don't really get paid um, now and again, if there's money in the bank, I might pay myself for running the workshops. But on the whole, I do it voluntary. Um, and my plan is that we're going to have a managing editor coming in in July when she comes back from maternity. She will do three days a week and take over the day-to-day -day management of the project from me because ultimately my career is journalism. So then this leads on to my biggest fear because just farmers... I set it up because I knew there was a need. I could see a need. I could see that somebody had to try and build a bridge between the media and farmers, urban and rural as well, if you like. And um, But I never did it for me. I'm quite content with my career. I love producing television and radio. I love writing. I want to continue being a journalist. And I think my biggest fear is that I have created something that works so brilliantly and it's way better than I ever could have imagined and it's in such demand um my biggest fear is that it won't be able to survive without me and that I might get taken away from the career that I actually do for me um and I think I think it's like many people who set something up from a, a place of wanting to make the world better or more of an altruistic reason or they do it because they know they've got something to offer and they want to help they end up doing something that really does fulfill a need, but might be a little bit less what they want for themselves, if that makes sense. Um, yes, it does. 
Yeah. So I feel that, that I would say, if I'm completely honest, that's my biggest fear right now um, is holding on to my identity as a journalist and what I do, but not wanting this amazing thing that I've created to fail and wanting to that to succeed. So my biggest fear is not being able to find the right balance. What do you do you have a motto by any chance that you live by? <laughs> I was thinking about this last night, Stephen. Um, I don't, but I do know that I say the same thing a lot. I hear myself saying it and it must feed back to that optimism I spoke about earlier. I, I always catch myself saying it'll be fine. And I, it's not a motto and it's not something I think about. It's something involuntary, but I say it a lot. And um, working in the TV industry, um, we're always on tight deadlines and it's always, it can get quite stressful. And we're producing a program now that needs to be delivered to the channel at the end of this week. And um, it's all very stressful. And I just keep hearing myself go, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I think that is because I am a true optimist. But maybe on some level, it's a mantra I repeat to myself <laughs> to keep things it's like, it'll be fine. And actually, it's a very simple, simple sentiment, but I think reiterating it brings comfort to me. And generally, I'm pleased to report, usually it is fine in the end. So, yeah, that's probably the closest thing I have to a motto. Finally, Anna, please advise our listeners where they may find your book, Divide. Well, if you live in the UK, um, please order it from your local independent bookshop so that we can support bookshops. Um, it's also in all of the high street ones. So Waterstones, you can order it from WH Smith, um, Blacks, um, or it's on Amazon. It's usually, there's usually a deal on it on Amazon. So if, if you know, money's a bit short, Amazon's probably your best bet. Um, and it's coming out in paperback uh on september the 14th and if you don't live in the uk um you can order it online it's on sale in the us and australia and canada i think um so if you went to amazon.com you can find it um there as well um and i would be so honored if anyone listening would like to read it and um i i, I do hope you enjoy it if you do with anna jones Thank you for taking the time to be a guest on this podcast. You really are an inspiration. Oh, thank you. Well, so, so are you. Right back at you. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge. The next episode is a slight change. It's entitled How to Decolonize Africa's Toxic Image, an interview with Mr. Milton Alimadi, a Ugandan-American author, journalist, professor, and co-founder of Black Star News. It will go live on the 7th of August, 2023. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>